Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Revolution 250 podcast. I'm Bob Allison. I chair the Rev 250 advisory group, and we are a collaboration among groups in Massachusetts looking at ways to commemorate the anniversaries of the American Revolution. And our guest today is Andrew Werman, who teaches at the Central Michigan University. He's an associate professor of history, and we're here to talk about his new book, The Contagion of Liberty, The Politics of Smallpox in the American Revolution. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, and thanks for all the work you're doing to make everyone aware and excited about the 250th anniversary coming up. Great. Actually, one of the really exciting things we're finding on this podcast is how much really interesting new work is being done on this period we thought we knew so well. And your book is certainly one of those really interesting works. So it looks at things we thought we knew, but tells it in somewhat of a different way. So thank you for writing it. Well, it was it was a lot of a lot of work. Uh, Some of it was uh, a pleasure to write and very exciting the, the stories and the, and the research that went into it. And I, I went to a lot of uh, towns in mm-hmm. Massachusetts to do do the work. Uh, so it, it's wonderful to have it have it out yeah. and have people reading it. It is. It is. Uh, and, and actually, two of the most, in, uh, you know, Boston looms large in the whole story of inoculation. And you tell the story of the 1721 outbreak really well. But then... Um, Marblehead and Salem also play really important roles. And so why don't we talk a little bit about what's happening with Marblehead? I mean, you have a chapter on the siege of Castle Pox, which is a um, fascinating story. And it has a lot of characters who are familiar with us, John Glover, Elbridge Gerry, but they're playing somewhat of a different role in this. Yeah, uh, Marblehead and Salem don't get as much attention in terms of the American Revolution and the general story. Boston soaks up and mm-hmm. and, and looms so appropriately large in the history of the Revolution uh, that these second and third largest communities in Massachusetts, these port cities of Salem and, and Marblehead, don't get as much attention. Combined, yeah. their population is almost as big as as Boston, they're right next to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and their politics are, are really interesting. And I think yeah. that without Salem and Marblehead both uh, joining Boston in, in revolution, uh, the, the ultimate revolution, whether it happens, takes place, mm-hmm. takes a really different turn. But yeah, Marblehead mm-hmm. is my favorite. That's the place where I started uh, doing research on the book when it was a dissertation because I wanted to dig into this episode that mm-hmm. had long been called an anti-inoculation riot right. in Marblehead. And I found it was a, uh, a published version by the Colonial Society of Massachusetts mm-hmm. of the of the diary of, of Ashley Bowen, a, a mm-hmm. sailor in yeah. Marblehead, or an ex-sailor in Marblehead who wrote an amazing... Uh, diary just about every day for decades mm-hmm. um, wrote his thoughts or what was happening there in in Marblehead along the waterfront and, and you, you make the point Andrew you know it doesn't talk about the Tea Party the Stamp Act other of those big events but he does talk about inoculation and about smallpox right and that was what I was really struck by because I was 
trying to really figure out how people in these communities away from Boston, uh, how they thought about the revolution, how they became mobilized or radicalized, if you will. And so I thought, okay, well, here's an ordinary sailor. I'm going to read his his diary and see, you know, his his thoughts at the the coming of the revolution. And it's all about smallpox. And I realized, okay, there's a there's a story here that hasn't been told. Mm -hmm. So what happened in Marblehead? So uh, there were uh, periodic epidemics, um, outbreaks of smallpox throughout the 18th century. There's a famous episode in Boston in 1721. Mm -hmm. But Massachusetts towns were pretty good at quarantining cases Mm -hmm. and stopping epidemics before they started. Marblehead uh, just uh, 20 miles from uh, Boston often uh, closed its its town gates to Boston when Boston was having an epidemic. They wouldn't allow travelers to come in. They would be really watchful at the port. Uh, anybody, any ships coming from infectious Boston would be quarantined and looked at. But in 1773, the fall of 1773, uh, smallpox started breaking out in, in Marblehead, a local uh, sailor, and his uh, family started breaking out with it. And, uh, and a local doctor thought it was a skin rash, didn't mm. think it was smallpox. Yeah. And that was a He thought it was bad error. soap causing that. Yeah, it was caused by, by soap. And so uh, the, the, the man, his name was Captain Lambert, who got, got sick, had lots of visitors come to mm. his house, his family, uh, wives, children took care of him. And it was disastrous. It started mm. spreading uh, smallpox throughout the community and they had a, had a terrible mm. outbreak on their hands. And so the community started saying, what do we do to stop it? Mm-hmm. Um, inoculation was, was known. It was pretty popular by the 1770s. There was really no great controversy over its efficacy mm-hmm. or whether it was contrary to God. People mm-hmm. understood that it was effective. The problem was that inoculation required a month of quarantine. Mm-hmm. So an individual who inoculated could potentially start an epidemic, could infect mm-hmm. their neighbors. So towns right. had to be really careful about how they mm-hmm. how they did it. And there in uh, Marblehead, they held, held a town meeting. And that's one of the things that I loved about the book was, was looking at all these town meeting right. records because some right. of them, especially in, in Marblehead and a little bit in Salem, were pretty rich about what they... Mm-hmm actually mentioned mm. so uh some uh entrepreneurs come forward and this is uh the glover brothers john mm. and jonathan glover azer orn and elbridge gary say uh they propose building a private hospital they'll mm-hmm. build it at their own expense it won't cost the ta- taxpayers anything and it'll be an inoculation hospital people can go there to get inoculated protect themselves from disease and the town votes for it. They say, okay, yeah. that sounds like a great idea to us. And it gradually, as the months went by, ordinary folks in Marblehead like Ashley Bowen realized mm-hmm. that this venture uh, would not help them. 
that mm-hmm. it was only attracting wealthy clientele. Mm-hmm. Often wealthy people from outside of Marblehead were getting inoculated. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the disease was still spreading in town. Yeah. These are people going there to spend a month and it becomes something of a resort. It's on an island off the coast and you have wealthy folks, single folks going there for designations, presumably, possibly. I mean, that's at least what seems to be. It's all the rumors about that kind of thing happening. And they can see it. Um, It's on Cat Island, which if you go to Marblehead, it's a wonderful place, but you can can see it from the the waterfront. So the the poor fishermen and sailors who can't actually afford to go for inoculation can watch uh, Mm -hmm. all the happenings on the the island, and they start getting very angry about it, especially when those folks start breaking quarantine. Right, yeah. Yeah, they're they're leaving two three weeks after instead of staying the full month, and this is yeah. So what happens with um, the hospital on Cat Island? Well, there are a number of meetings about it um, where where people express their anger. Uh, this is only wealthy people getting inoculated. Mm-hmm. We're not saving ourselves, and the meetings don't really go anywhere. The the proprietors, Gary and and Glover. Um, don't have have many solutions they've mm-hmm. sunk a lot of money into yeah. them they bought the island they bought the hospital they're paying these doctors and mm-hmm. they want to recoup their their money so they're refusing to uh shut down um there are several classes of patients that go in get inoculated and leave so several classes that, that a couple hundred people at a time would mm-hmm. inoculate there have gone through at a period in which it was empty in January 1774, about six weeks after the Boston Tea Party, mm-hmm. a group of sailors in Marblehead decide enough's enough. We don't want this thing to reopen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they blame the hospital for uh, causing these lapses of quarantines, maybe causing more outbreaks. So they go mm-hmm. out and they destroy it. They burn wow. this new hospital mm-hmm. to the ground. There are some caretakers there who are attacked as well in in the process. And it just starts uh, a months long ca- uh, chaos within mm. Marblehead as as the leaders of the town try to try to corral these right. these riots that are happening on a nightly basis afterward. Wow. And it does sour Elbridge Gerry on you know, here he is. He's been part of the Patriot movement and then others who also side with him politically or going out and destroying the hospital he's built. It sours him on the idea of democracy. And it's an interest. I mean, we could spend the rest of the hour, half hour talking. We could. It's fascinating. And and there have been some folks, some historians who have written about the episode saying that the the people who destroyed it were loyalists and they were against the ideas Mm -hmm. of the revolution. But it's not true. Uh, Everyone supported uh, inoculation. And there was a commission by Mm -hmm. the uh, Massachusetts um, Assembly mm-hmm. went out there to get to the bottom of it to yeah. do an investigation, and they found that it was uh, the poor of the town who were angry at being shut out. Right. Gary yeah. didn't know what to think. He was writing letters to Samuel Adams mm-hmm. saying, you know, I've, I've lost faith in the, yeah. in the people. How could they do this? Sort of classic mm-hmm. Gary. Yeah. Um, and you know, that, that a mob had risen up against him and that why won't they just settle down and listen to their, uh, uh, to, to the elite yeah. and who, who are serving their best interest. And, and yeah. Adam says, look, you can't, you can't treat people this way. Um, they yeah. had a, had a right to do it. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and then Salem, it's, you know, Salem and Marblehead uh, are always 
at odds. And it seems like Salem and Marblehead at first thought, we'll build this together, then it doesn't happen. But Salem goes in a different direction, building a hospital that does accommodate everyone. But then they hire as the director, one of these incredible characters, James Latham, who is um, someone who does see money to be made in inoculation. Yeah, another person who's seeing money here to the way, a way to profit off of the epidemic. But James Latham is much more savvy and was a really fun character to try to figure out. Yeah. There's no James Latham papers anywhere. So I had to kind of piece together uh, clues about his life. But he pops up uh, throughout the book. And yeah, Salem... Uh, doesn't want to repeat Marblehead's mistakes. So they're coming a little bit after Marblehead and they create a hospital that will take care of the poor that's built into the structure of the payments uh, that the fee for inoculating at, at a public hospital in Salem, not private, uh, would also contribute to paying for poor patients mm -hmm. in every class. So they mm -hmm. handle that part better. But they yeah. want to, they, they get sort of spellbound by this... Um, uh, James Latham, who advertises in all the newspapers yeah. in New England for his hospitals. He operates an inoculation franchise system. Mm -hmm. uh, he claims to be connected with uh, the, the famous Sutton family in England that has sort of revolutionized uh, inoculation there using secret methods and secret techniques. Um, it's supposedly a safer version yeah. of inoculation than what's available in America. And their so secret their secret technique, though, is one that's known to other people. That is, it's using. This it's thing. not much of a secret. Yeah. And, yeah. and this annoys Americans to no end mm. because they think, you know, Americans at this point have been inoculating for decades. They've gotten pretty good at it. Mm. And so they. Uh, uh, lots of Americans get taken in and say, this Suttonian yeah. thing sounds great. Oh, yeah. um, but but many others are really irritated by it mm -hmm. and think that the British are stealing an American invention. They, yeah. they start claiming that inoculation is really that Americans should get credit for mm -hmm. having invented it, experimented with it, perfecting it. Mm -hmm. So Salem brings in uh, Latham, who yeah. has opened a chain of inoculation hospitals across Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, well, a little bit in Connecticut. And... Uh, uh, and uh, he's boasting that he can do it better than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Salem, their uh, uh, patriot revolutionary, maybe a little bit of a household name, especially the people in, in Salem, is Timothy mm -hmm. Pickering. Right. So a young Timothy Pickering who would go on to be Secretary of State under George Washington. Uh, and uh, Pickering invites Latham in uh, but ultimately sours on him. Yeah. Latham uh, wants more money immediately. Mm -hmm. His patients start doing poorly. A couple of them die in the first couple of classes. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Pickering realizes they've been hoodwinked. And mm -hmm. they and he connects that to the revolution itself. He's saying yeah. that, that British people uh, continually do this. Mm -hmm. They boast about being better than Americans, but they don't have anything better to offer than, than what we do. But then when Pickering presents this, a series of these long essays in the newspaper yeah. and then in a town meeting, the town doesn't say, oh, you're right. They say, boy, you're really a crank. We love this guy. Yeah, that's what happens at first. So Salem is a 
royalist, uh, loyalist mm-hmm. town. They have a reputation within Massachusetts of being the most loyal to the crown. Um, there are county seats, so there are um, uh, customs agents mm-hmm. and, and courts and things uh, that, that connect Salem to, to the crown in a way that Marblehead was always right. more, more radical. Yeah. And it's going to be Salem's leadership has been yeah, yeah yeah and then right and then uh, Thomas Gage in with the uh, intolerable acts which is being announced about the same time uh, shifts the capital of Massachusetts to Salem thinking that would be a safer harbor mm-hmm. that uh, the people there are more generally loyal than they are in in Boston mm-hmm. uh, but the whole Latham affair has turned Salem's politics around wow. um, Latham's uh mess you know his 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 terrible actions in front of the hospital his embarrassment in the newspapers to pickering have put pickering in charge of mm-hmm. salem and he's had a had a kind of 180 he comes from a, a loyalist family um but now has really taken up a patriot cause uh, in large part he credits latham for having having done that to him and so uh gage arrives and finds that the that that Salem isn't a lot better than than Boston. There are still lots of antagonists uh, mm-hmm. towards uh, Crown efforts. Interesting. We're talking with Andrew Orman, who is a professor, associate professor of history at Central Michigan University, author of *The Contagion of Liberty: The Politics of Smallpox in the American Revolution*. Now, if we could just back up for a moment because we have this dispute, the Sutton's claiming we've created the secret method and then Americans saying, well, actually we've been doing this. I mean, the real seminal point for Boston, Massachusetts history is in 1721 and Cotton Mather plays a large role in this as well as Onesimus, someone who initially didn't get much credit from historians, who's an African, um, who tells Mather about the way the people in his part of Africa, and it's ambiguous whether they're, where, where exactly he is from, practice this method of preventing a smallpox epidemic. That's right. So uh, Americans at the time of the revolution are aware of that story. They know that uh, Boston has long practiced inoculation, um, but they don't credit Onesimus for it. He's sort of whitewashed in the early histories of of inoculation. They give more credit to Mather, but especially like to credit uh, Zabdiel Boylston, right. Dr. Boylston, who's the one who actually performs it. And Boylston lives a long time. He he lives until 1766, and writes about inoculation and is more celebrated afterward, and doesn't give much credit to. Mather or no. Onesimus in his story. So Americans start claiming that they're, that the inoculation that they've developed is something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and a number, and, and it goes beyond uh, Massachusetts, there are a number of people throughout the, the 13 colonies who take credit for having perfected inoculation mm-hmm. or invented the American method. There's uh, folks in New York, there's a guy in uh, Philadelphia named Adam Thompson. Mm-hmm. There's a South Carolinian named James Kilpatrick. And while none of them really invented inoculation, it was certainly an African or Chinese uh, innovation originally. Um, 
they all start claiming that Americans have done it, have perfected it without the help of the British. Mm-hmm. And the British are not inoculating uh, in, in nearly the same numbers as American colonists are. Mm-hmm. In, in big cities in Britain, London, uh, smallpox is endemic. Um, Mm -hmm. Most people experience it in childhood, but it's epidemic in America. There are long periods where there's no smallpox Mm -hmm. and it breaks out in these epidemics. So they experienced it as a Mm -hmm. different kind of disease in both places. And that helps explain why American colonists react differently to smallpox than than the British do or the British Army does. Mm One of the interesting things here is two of the characters who were really pivotal as anti-inoculation in 1721, Dr. Uh, Douglas and Benjamin Franklin, later changed their minds. As, as having more experience with inoculation, they come to see its efficacy as opposed to digging yeah. in. It, it, it's um, an interesting piece of this overall story about experience uh, changing the way we think or changing our opinions of things. And there's one more big figure who yes. really changes his mind. There's George Washington exactly. does as yes. well. So, yeah, um, that's a, sort of a, a, a lesson here, I suppose, that can be taken from, from the book. Um, William Douglas was this Scottish doctor who uh, uh, opposed what yeah. uh, Cotton Mather was doing, wrote essays, you know, you can't do this, it needs a scientific test we don't trust that african people are giving us this knowledge why yeah. didn't any slaves speak up before and yeah, yeah. Uh, but over time he looks at the results and he can't deny that boylston's experiment that fewer people died under inoculation mm-hmm. far fewer yeah. than died from natural smallpox and he uh uh starts to walk back some of his claims by the time douglas dies in the 1750s um, he has become a huge supporter of inoculation and can't believe uh, that that people in Great Britain especially haven't uh, haven't started promoting it as much as American colonists have. Um, yeah. With Franklin, Franklin was a was a Bostonian in 1721, mm-hmm. a teenager. Uh, his brother James was p- uh, published an anti-vaccination newspaper, and of course Franklin helped with that. But both Franklin brothers, James and uh, Benjamin, uh, within a couple of decades, mm-hmm. um, become proud supporters of yeah. inoculation. They realize the error in their ways. Yeah, and even when Franklin's son dies at the age of four, and there's a rumor that Franklin, uh, he would die under inoculation, Franklin, to the end of his life, regrets not having him inoculated. They had planned to do it, but he had a he had a childhood illness. They thought, well, let, let him get better. And then he contracted smallpox and died. And this is something Franklin lamented to the end of his life. It was such a terrible tragedy. And yes, by the time Frankie died in 1736, um, for the previous five or six years, Franklin had started writing about how uh, much inoculation had improved, had encouraged parents to do it. He had written uh, and published instructions in his newspaper and in Poor Richard's Almanac about it. And so, yeah, when Frankie actually caught smallpox and died, um, uh, skeptical Philadelphians said, aha, we knew. Right. Uh, 
that inoculation was dangerous and Frank Benjamin Franklin would you know sort of tail between his legs and after this terrible tragedy had to admit that mm-hmm. the thing he had been advocating uh, inoculation they hadn't actually done they had, yeah. they had postponed yeah. it and then he you know spent much of the rest of his life trying to tell people not to postpone yes. uh, inoculating their children. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Andrew Werman from the uh, Central Michigan University about the contagion of liberty, the politics of smallpox and the American Revolution. And then the other figure who has a change of heart in this is George Washington, who had had smallpox as a teenager in Barbados. And then and, and historians from Parson Weems actually to Joe Ellis have kind of given Washington credit for starting inoculation by requiring it in the Continental Army. But you make clear that that hadn't been his policy from the beginning, that he had opposed inoculating the troops for a variety of actually very good reasons that, you know, they'll they'll have to be quarantined for a month, which means we can't do anything. And some state in Connecticut, in fact, had laws against inoculation. So what do you do there? New York also had restrictions on it. So if your troops are there, what can you do? And it's an interesting story how Washington comes to be a supporter of inoculation. Yeah, I think a lot of Americans, if they hadn't already uh, known about George Washington's decision to inoculate the troops in uh, February 1777, learned about it during COVID, right? And learned about it while we're trying talking about vaccine mandates, and of course, yeah. Washington mandated it for the army. And earlier... It, the earliest historians of the American Revolution, the sort of first and second generations, didn't mention Washington's inoculation effort very much. But when they did, they were saying uh, that it was that Washington had this single minded view that he convinced soldiers mm-hmm. to inoculate, that he was the the one who understood how important it was while while mm-hmm. others around him were skeptical. And that wasn't really true. There were Mm -hmm. others around Washington, his own medical directors, lots of officers, lots of soldiers themselves who were demanding Mm -hmm. inoculation. And as you say, Washington had reasons. It was was a rational decision for him uh, to oppose it at first. I think we can sort of look at it, and I do kind of lay it out in the book. Mm -hmm. There might be some places where you could sort of second guess that he could have done it sooner. But Washington's reasons Uh, made total sense. He was worried that uh, inoculating the soldiers would take them out of out of the field of battle for for a month. He also had a deep distrust of inoculators themselves. His Mm -hmm. own medical director, the first one, Benjamin Church, was a spy for the British. There were other doctors who were rumored to be spreading inoculation Mm -hmm. in, in Boston. And so, you know, Washington, it wasn't really sure that he could trust or get enough inoculators that he could trust to do the job mm-hmm. uh, too. So it wasn't, there were a lot of uh, factors for that Washington had to weigh, but ultimately uh, soldiers started inoculating themselves in Canada. Mm-hmm. Washington and his generals tried to put a stop to it, but they never really could. Mm-hmm. Um, Artemis Ward, who was the commander of Massachusetts troops before Washington arrived in uh, Cambridge to take over, uh, uh, ordered the, allowed, I should say, the inoculation of some of his troops in 1776. And Washington did not approve, but Washington at that point was in uh, uh, New Jersey, I believe, and yeah. uh, or New York. 
and couldn't do much to, to stop them. And so just allows it to happen. This angers generals elsewhere. There were, you know, the, the laws surrounding smallpox were, were a patchwork. Different states allowed different things. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, Washington's decision uh, was hugely momentous because it made for one general policy around smallpox. We're going mm -hmm. to inoculate, we're going to inoculate all the new troops as they're mm -hmm. enlisting. So as mm -hmm. they're getting their equipment, as they're mm -hmm. learning how to march, we'll inoculate them during, during that time, uh, which was a perfect time to, to do mm -hmm. it. Uh, we'll inoculate the active soldiers in, in cycles. So we make sure that there are always troops at the ready mm -hmm. and Washington's doctors, his medical staff were assuring him we've done this before we can do it. Mm -hmm. And to Washington's great credit, he changes his mind mm -hmm. and it's a tremendous success. And afterward, by the spring of 1777, Washington is, is as enthusiastic, uh, for inoculation as anybody else in America. He just thinks it's a, a wonderful salvation and wants mm -hmm. everyone to do it. Yeah, you know, you have the army in Canada that's really devastated by smallpox in 1776, but then the army after the inoculation policy in 1777, you know, you make it clear that the, the Northern army defeated smallpox. It's um, one enemy they can contain. And it does change. And of course, things are a bit different in the southern colonies where it's That's more right. spread out. It's more difficult to do this, but it's a tremendous change that happens. And, and you think about this actually um, being against the law in places like Connecticut. There's an, another episode in, I think, 1764, where Ethan Allen has himself inoculated in front of the meeting house in Salisbury, Connecticut, as a defiance to. Right. The law of the opposition. Thomas Young, who becomes a leader in the Sons of Liberty in Boston, is actually the one who performs the inoculation. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, Bob, because I uh, cut a bunch of Connecticut out of the book. I'm going to publish it separately as, oh, a, as an article, I think, because uh, Connecticut was such an interesting case because they mm -hmm. had this longstanding law banning inoculation completely with really harsh penalties. Mm -hmm. um, and it made some sense. Um, mm -hmm. They thought they could keep smallpox out via quarantine, yeah. and they thought if people were inoculating that that would cause it to spread. And so, uh, but it was an unpopular law. There were lots of people, not just Ethan Allen, that mm -hmm. were sort of testing it, some people mm -hmm. getting arrested for inoculating mm -hmm. in, in Connecticut. And ultimately, it was, it was Washington's decision in 1777, and, it, and it's a funny moment of, of authority because mm -hmm. Washington's commander in chief of the Continental Army is not the president of no. the United States. He doesn't mm -hmm. have that kind of executive authority. Mm -hmm. Yet he demands that Connecticut, counter to its own law, mm -hmm. open three inoculation hospitals for the Continental Army. And for a moment, uh, the governor of Connecticut, uh, Trumbull, mm -hmm. and the government there has to think about. Yeah. Can we refuse? What are we going to do? And yeah, they ultimately yeah. agree to follow Washington's mm -hmm. uh, commands. Yeah, it's interesting because they, they, there had been these um, hospitals set up on islands off the coast or across the New York border to allow inoculation. I, I look forward to the article because that is going to be an interesting piece of this story. 
we're, we're talking with Andrew Werman, the author of The Contagion of Liberty on smallpox or the politics of smallpox in the American Revolution. Um, another, yeah, I think you make the point that the big lesson here is it's not this idea of being imposed from above, from Washington, but instead it is these ordinary soldiers and ordinary citizens who want to get inoculated who are pushing this. It's, yeah, um, I mean, the, the demand is tremendous. And local communities, some of them, and I describe a number of them in, in the book, including in Marblehead and Salem, uh, well, uh, figure out ways to provide inoculation. They're providing mm -hmm. smallpox hospitals. They have discounts or, or free inoculations for the poor. Some of them do general inoculations where the whole uh, city or community mm -hmm inoculates together. Boston does that in yeah. 1764. Uh, so the, the demand is, is, is there. Um, so as the Continental Army is, is fighting and as smallpox is breaking out, uh, ordinary soldiers, citizens in, in towns across the colonies are trying to figure out how do we get this? How do we inoculate? Um, uh, how can we organize it together? Mm -hmm. And inoculation because it was infectious, required regulation. It required right. laws and coordination, licensing of doctors, lots of communication via newspapers, town meetings uh, to pull it off. And, and I think one of the big uh, things that you see is colonists deciding this is the kind of government that we want. We want a mm -hmm. government that responds in a crisis. Mm -hmm. We want leaders who... Uh, will will uh, help protect the security of our communities we want to provide for the poor and they're they're making all of these claims you know while imagining an independent uh future for the country as a whole and washington's actions of inoculating the troops fit right in with that as soon as washington's order gets out in connecticut throngs of people start mm -hmm uh getting inoculated it's technically illegal but they do it anyway they've got washington's per permission mm -hmm. uh, and they go just inoculation wild it's a fascinating story we're talking with andrew werman from central michigan university and you, you also have a chapter on norfolk the before the revolution there's a, another similar to what happens in salem marblehead with this uh, smallpox hospital being set up and rioters and, and it ends with a series of lawsuits and, and there's a big political struggle among these different people former mayors uh present mayors yeah. it's um a tangled story in norfolk i don't know if you wanted to say anything about it or tell people to read the book I can say a little bit about it. Um, the politics of smallpox in the Southern colonies was really different than in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I wanted that to come through in the yeah. book. So the Norfolk episode is similar to Marblehead in some respects. You've got some locals in town that want to uh, have themselves, their families inoculated. And people in Norfolk are, are outraged by it, not because they're against inoculation. Mm -hmm. They understand it's effective. They would like to be inoculated too, but because they've, they've decided to do it without getting the town's permission, without mm -hmm. following any yeah. kind of regulation. And uh, that episode is especially tied in with, with race. And it is throughout the South because mm -hmm. by and large, uh, even as inoculation is getting demanded by colonists, 
in the in the southern colonies, most enslavers don't inoculate uh, enslaved people. It's too expensive. It will put slaves out of work for a month. Uh, some of them will be will be will die or be uh, injured long term, and slave owners just. Uh, mostly don't do it or they try to inoculate just a few select members of their uh household slaves but but the agricultural workers they leave alone and Mm -hmm. that becomes a major problem during Mm -hmm. the revolution as smallpox uh is kept out of the continental army but it Mm -hmm. infects uh huge numbers of of black people Mm -hmm. in in the south right it's probably just worth mentioning, since so many of our listeners might not be aware of this, that inoculation refers to injecting you with the live smallpox virus, which potentially could kill you, which is one reason there was some hesitation about doing this. And then you are contagious with smallpox while you're carrying this, even though you received the inoculation. Right. And you, you, you mentioned that the death rate under inoculation is usually less than 1%, whereas for the catching the live smallpox virus, it can be up to 30% That's uh, right. yeah. death rate. It's actually probably the most devastating illness that you know, mankind's ever suffered. And you make it a point, this it's, is just a virus that hits humans. It's terrible, yeah. It's not animal-born. Animal um, colonists uh, at this time in the, in the 18th century were pretty good at stopping it. They didn't know exactly, they didn't know it was a virus. Yeah. They didn't know exactly what was spreading it or how it was caused, but they knew it spread person to person that it yeah. was contagious so they put up a fence around the house of someone who had it and it's that's right yeah it. if you were sick it, it was the law to report it report mm-hmm. it to local authorities and they would either move you to an isolated pest house or, mm-hmm. or quarantine hospital or uh they'd put a fence around your house and say nobody can come or go uh for for a month and yeah. it was pretty effective at stopping outbreaks it, it yeah. maybe sounds horrible but uh it 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 stopped it most yeah, of the time yeah, yeah and then about um but yeah the difference between you were getting to the difference between inoculation and then vaccination yeah. later in my book the, the last chapter yeah. is about that transition right. to yeah. vaccination which uses cowpox instead right. of smallpox and the great thing about vaccination is uh that it wasn't contagious so right. when you're vaccinated you don't have to worry about spreading a disease to anyone else you're protected but so is everybody else around you yeah and smallpox has been it's the one disease that's been successfully eradicated from the planet that uh, the last person to catch it naturally was in the 1970s in somalia which is it's really an amazing story which you also do allude to i know there have been other books written about that whole campaign Mm -hmm. right and um so a tremendous story. Uh, now, had, uh, were you vaccinated for smallpox? I, I'm wondering if you're old enough to. I'm not quite old enough. So okay. I was born, you know, after that last yeah. person uh, in in Somalia caught it naturally. And and no, I mean my uh, parents uh, have uh, vaccinated for for smallpox, but but no. So yeah. I, t- I tell people, you know, I've. I've if if smallpox, God forbid, ever ever escaped mm. or got out again, uh, I know how to inoculate now. I've read, That's right. I've read enough yeah. about it. I could yeah, probably yeah. pull it off. Uh, well, we'll come and look you up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was vaccinated, and but yeah. So um, good. So Andrew Werman, author of The Contagion of Liberty, 
The um, Politics of Smallpox and the American Revolution. Tremendous book. I want to thank you for joining us and talking about it. And thank you so much for, for having me. I love talking about it. And there's a yeah. lot more, many more stories in, in the book about local communities uh, across New England, especially. Yeah, it's a really a terrific book. And so I want to thank Jonathan Lane, our producer, and our friends in Rev250, as well as our listeners in various parts of the world. And if you are in one of these places, send an email to Jonathan Lane, that's jlane at masshist.org, and they'll send you some of our Rev250 memorabilia. So this week, I want to thank our listeners in Delhi and in Sydney, Australia, in Dorchester, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, as well as Orleans on Cape Cod and in Greenbrier, Arkansas. Thank you all and thank you wherever you are. And I look forward to talking to you again and having Andrew back, Andrew Worman back to talk more about smallpox and the revolution. And now we will be piped out on the road to Boston.